0: Welcome to DLSN, a podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. DLSN promotes the advancement of women in private equity and finance through conversations with women in the private equity and finance space. These conversations provide both insights and practical takeaways to inform your deal work and enhance the culture of your organization. If you're ready to drive the industry toward a more inclusive and diverse environment, then it's time to come to the table.
1: Hello, this is Rebecca Rainey with McGuire Woods for the DOSN podcast, and we are here with Anisha Ragunathan. So, Anisha, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Thanks, Rebecca. Glad to be here. I'm a current vice president at Susquehanna Growth Equity, an entrepreneur centric growth equity firm, and I've spent the last eight years of my career investing in technology, data, and software companies across venture capital, private equity, and now growth equity stages.
1: Very cool. What attracted you to the private equity and finance space? And did you have any concerns before heading down this career path?
2: Yeah, great question. I've always been really fascinated by entrepreneurship and building something to solve really complex problems. I actually thought that I would be a founder myself and I've tinkered with many business ideas as far back as I can remember in high school and college. I had really the unique opportunity to combine my interests in finance and entrepreneurship right out of college with a role at Bessemer Venture Partners. And I jumped at the chance because I was really excited to talk to other founders and entrepreneurs and spend my time really getting to know them and hearing about their businesses and how they scaled them. So I thought, what better training ground to be a future entrepreneur than to talk to a bunch of other founders and CEOs um, as my day job. So that's what really got me interested in early stage investing to start. And then over the years, I just really fell in love with being an investor and being able to talk to passionate CEOs and founders across many, many different stages of company and business model types and industries. So kind of fell into that, you know, and now eight years later, I absolutely love doing what I do and and think it's kind of the perfect uh, stage for me. To your question on concerns before heading down this career path, I guess, since I started my career out of college doing this, I was pretty apprehensive about whether I would have the skill set necessary to really give people advice on how to grow their companies. I thought, you know, what can a 21, 22-year-old know about scaling businesses and building teams and growing products? And I felt, you know, a little bit inadequate in that sense going into the industry, but it really is kind of a, a, a learn over time mentorship type model. And I was fortunate to have many strong investors and mentors along the way in my career. So kind of um, a little bit of fake it till you make it and a little bit of imposter syndrome, but tried to balance that out over time and, and uh, you know, eventually felt felt really comfortable that I could actually make an impact in helping these companies grow. Very
1: cool. Yeah, I agree that one of my favorite parts of the job is getting to talk to people who, you know, had this, you know, their little baby, their business, and they're really passionate about what they do. And they, they know so much about these specific things. That's one of my favorite parts as well. So how has your background and experience prepared you to be effective in what can sometimes be a challenging environment for women of diverse backgrounds?
2: Yeah, definitely. I guess I've always tried to be really data driven and fact based in my speech. And I kind of rely on knowing the numbers and the financials cold. And that way I'm able to speak in a really intellectually honest way about businesses. I've had the benefit of looking at companies, you know, at the very early stages during my time at Bessemer, but I've also looked at really large and complex businesses from more of a private equity uh, lens when I was at TA Associates. So kind of bringing that together and speaking from experience and using facts and data to drive my conclusions, I think helps me be effective when I communicate rather than saying, you know, I feel or I think I try to say, here's what I'm seeing in the data. And here's how I think the business could look in five years what are your thoughts on that? And I kind of try to approach it from a more fact based uh, lens. very cool. That makes
1: a lot of sense. so what's um what's a goal that you have set for yourself in the upcoming year?
2: Yeah, I think moving from, I guess being more of a numbers person, you know, as a kind of vice president type role, you're you're very involved with quarterbacking deals, you know, sourcing new opportunities and building relationships um but you're still you know really in, in charge of the deal process and making that happen as i think about what it takes to be a partner it's really more of the interpersonal dynamics with founders and ceos really building that trust with entrepreneurs you know, serving as a board member. And so I've started to do a little bit of that in the past couple of years. I'm on two boards now, and I've really shifted my, I guess, the mix of work from just being quantitative to also really being involved with entrepreneurs directly and helping advise them on a more interpersonal level. So one goal that I have is really to continue to build a really strong voice on the boards of these companies and one specific goal around that is i would love to recruit another independent board member a female an independent female board member to one of my companies so i'm i'm hoping i can get that done this year and i think it'll be really value additive for the board and i'm excited about working with this person so that's one of my goals professionally and then On the personal side, I think I really enjoy mentoring young investors and investing professionals, people that want to break into the industry, um, maybe come from non-traditional backgrounds. And so I've been working a lot with a firm called Ven Capital, which specifically focuses on BIPOC and women individuals that want to break into the venture industry. So I've been mentoring them in my free time.
1: Kind of stemming from that and your your mentoring ways do you think that inclusion is important to someone in your role
2: Yeah, I guess fundamentally, investing is all about diverse perspectives and bringing different voices to the table. There's plenty of data that shows that the best returns come from environments where there's respectful debate and discourse and everyone has a chance to voice their opinions and experiences. So I think especially in investing and especially at the sort of mid to senior levels, inclusion is extremely important because Everyone has their own experiences and backgrounds, and that perspective is really valuable on a deal, specifically if it's in a space that you know more than others or you feel more connected to. As an example, there's tons of startups that are focused on silver tech, aging, women's health, um, all these different topics that I guess can kind of get overlooked without those diverse perspectives. So I think really on the investing side, it's an advantage to have a different opinion and a different perspective. So I think inclusion is extremely important to someone in this role. And I think it really does have to come from all levels of the organization. So as a vice president, it's my job to create an inclusive environment for the people that work for me, the analysts and associates, and also speak up in partnership meetings and really kind of cultivate that inclusivity throughout the firm. So I think it's extremely important.
1: You discussed bringing in people with specific knowledge to create diverse perspectives. Can you talk about kind of some of your specialty areas?
2: Yeah, I focus a lot on growth stage businesses. So companies that have found product market fit and are really focusing on scaling, you know, their go to market efforts, sales and marketing, building out product, um, maybe considering you know, more strategic expansion areas like moving internationally. A lot of the companies I work with have never raised capital. So they're founder-owned businesses and they're starting to think about bringing on a partner to really help, you know, execute on some of these really strategic initiatives that they just haven't had the bandwidth or the capital to pursue. And so within that, I tend to focus on software businesses in particular. And within that, I look at a lot of different verticals like supply chain, healthcare, and fintech. So those are kind of three buckets that I, I've built experience in over the years, having done around seven different investments uh, across those areas. Very interesting. When
1: we talked last week, you, you mentioned that you've had the opportunity to get experience in all different kind of levels of investing. So can you talk a little bit about early stage versus late stage investing and how to scale a business and retain women in your late stage deals?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think the trade-offs between growth and profitability are often difficult for entrepreneurs to navigate on their own because they just they don't have the benefit of having seen A lot of those businesses before and kind of studying the data and benchmarks around how to calibrate your business as you grow. So on the early stages, you know, I think my time at Bessemer has really been very, you know, important in terms of building that that hyper growth thesis around different market areas, thinking about tailwinds, thinking about product investments that set you up for growth. And then as I moved to more later stage investing, I started to understand really how do you flip the switch on profitability? How do you think about unit economics? What do you do in order to scale out product without overspending on R&D? Very kind of granular learnings from bigger businesses that had gone through that path before. Um, I started to get really deep into acquisitions as a way to drive growth and um, thinking about structuring a sales team, in a way that, you know, really incentivizes people to get new customers, but also not lose focus of existing customers. So really just super granular company building that I was able to learn from, you know, my current role and my time in private equity. And so I'm kind of able to bring a pretty nice mix of both growth and capital efficiency to companies when I work with them today. So I really love, I really love the stage of investing that I focus on today. We're mostly minority investors, investing in growth stage companies, but doing so in a way that's uh, capital efficient and responsible. And so I really like that. To your question around sort of where do I see the biggest drop off in terms of female investors, I would say the venture stages have done a great job cultivating a strong pipeline of female talent. Maybe it's because the sort of spec for venture investors is a bit broader. You can have different Backgrounds—you don't necessarily have to have the the finance background, and so I I've noticed in the past five years a lot more women in venture, um, and it's it's been really great and encouraging to see. At the same time, I think with some of the private equity stages, you know, there's still I think room to improve there in terms of female investors that are kind of junior partner or partner level. Um, I I know a few, and I've been fortunate to work with some. But I think that's still where I see a lot of drop-off. And I'm not sure exactly what causes that. I think part of it is that a lot of traditional private equity firms still require you to go to business school. And so you kind of narrow the funnel a lot where you have people who want to continue staying in the the industry, but don't have business school. And so they're not able to get promoted. And so you see drop-off there. So I think that's maybe one thing that if firms were more open-minded about... Business school, you might see more senior women in private equity type roles. But I'm fortunate that my firm doesn't require business school. I didn't go to business school, and so I was able to just continue to advance in my investing career. And so um, that's been really nice. But I'd love to see I'd love to see more senior women in the growth and private equity stages for sure. It's really interesting that you say that
1: because I, I actually have a couple of women family members who are involved in venture, but don't have any that are involved in private equity and, and see it on a much less regular basis in my current role. Um so it's it's really interesting to hear you echo that. How do you think is the best way to evolve as a woman in private equity, you know, keeping some of those things in mind that you just mentioned.
2: Yeah, I think you have to, I mean, first and foremost, you have to be really, really good at the role man, woman, you know, anyone involved in this industry, I think you have to have sort of the the mix of skills, quantitative, qualitative um, sourcing deals is really key. Being able to build relationships with entrepreneurs, being able to extrapolate trends from data, all of that is table stakes, I think. I do think that to succeed as as a woman in this industry, you do need really strong mentors, both men and women mentors, and kind of people that will help you sort of discuss your thoughts about a business freely and openly and give you feedback. Because I think initially, it can be kind of scary to stand up in front of people and and explain why you like a business or pitch a thesis or even, you know, pitch an entrepreneur on why they should work with you. And so um, that confidence building takes time and it takes, you know, mentorship and training. So I think, you know, seeking that out for yourself and building a really strong network of peers that you can talk to about, Different opportunities or float float things by people um, is really critical. I have the I've been fortunate in that I have a strong, close, tight knit circle of other female investors across different stages and funds and strategies. But we all are supporting each other as we continue in our careers, and it's been really, really helpful um, to have that circle of trust. So I think that that's really key. I also think that women actually have an advantage in this, which is, I think, you know, I don't know if this is a generalization, but I do feel that women are more intuitive and better able to build relationships with others and kind of be empathetic in these, in these what is often a transactional type of discussion. And when it comes to, you know, investing in a company or buying a business or convincing someone to work with you, I think empathy is really important because these are often entrepreneurs that have dedicated their lives to building their company and they have a different risk appetite than you. And so coming into those discussions with really empathy first and kind of understanding what it is that they're looking for, I think makes a ton of difference in outcomes and success. And so I think I just try to use my unique voice when it comes to those things and kind of lean into my sense of intuition and empathy, because that is something that comes naturally to me.
1: Yeah, I agree with everything that you're saying. I think that makes a lot of sense. Are there some other particular strengths that you you see in women and in private equity beyond empathy that you'd like to maybe talk about as geared towards a kind of a younger audience about what their strengths are and how they can cultivate that into being successful in this industry?
2: Yeah, Absolutely. I would say the other thing that I think women often do is they're very realistic with risk and expectations. So they won't over they don't tend to oversell, you know, whether it's a deal or a financial forecast. They tend to be pretty kind of fair and present the risks uh, in a really conscientious way, whereas I think men are maybe more likely to kind of overinflate expectations. And so I think in the venture industry you've kind of seen that get rewarded, whether it be you know more dollars flowing into companies that have male CEOs or male male CEOs having an easier time fundraising because they're really just able to kind of go out there and sell the the big vision. But on the growth side, you know, I think the risk conversations are really important because we're typically investing in companies that are self sustaining, they're bootstrapped, um, and so understanding the risks is really more important at the later stages when you're not just trying to sell a big vision, you are looking at um, pros and cons, you are really digging into different risk factors. And I think that, that women tend to present those um, in a very fair and balanced way. And so kind of leaning into that and kind of using your, your ability to kind of forecast accurately, and maybe you're not overselling, but, um, and it's not super glamorous, but you are presenting things as is and you know kind of leaning into that i think is is important so that's the other thing i've observed and just kind of thinking back to some of the the transactions that i've worked on and and what makes what makes for a successful transaction i think kind of tying that into this discussion i really believe that it's a successful transaction is about getting alignment up front with you and the entrepreneur really kind of understanding what they are looking to solve for do they want you know kind of primary capital to put on their the balance sheet of their business to grow the company are they looking for some liquidity maybe they've run their companies for 20 years never taken a dollar out maybe they're looking for some secondary really understanding what's on their mind and how can you approach the transaction from from a place of understanding and empathy that really does make for a successful transaction. So I think open communication and transparency are really important. Making sure that bad news travels at the same speed as good news, kind of not, not really holding back when you, know, you find something in the data that it doesn't look great. I think bringing that to their attention right away and kind of doing so in a way that's sensitive and thoughtful really goes a long way in making a successful transaction.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I I definitely agree with the whole good news, bad news, traveling at the same speed, because, you know, the faster that you can get any potential bad news in front of someone being very sensitive about it, like you said, presenting it very fairly, the more quickly that you can work to, you know, come up with a solution and potentially keep that timeline going and hopefully meet their goals in that way. So I definitely agree with you there.
2: Yeah. And I think the truth of the matter is like no one's business is going to be perfect. And I think, you know, sometimes as an entrepreneur, you kind of, you're supposed to sort of maybe ignore that and, and charge forward with kind of, you know, blind enthusiasm, which makes sense because if you don't have that degree of um, enthusiasm and, and sort of suspending disbelief, it's tough to keep building a business on your own. And so, you know, when we when we look at companies, we'll often find things that that maybe the founders and, and CEOs aren't necessarily thinking about that we see as, as a potential negative. And so, you know, it's about communicating that with them in a way that's constructive and, and says, look, we're still interested in your company. Here's where we think you can improve and kind of providing that constructive feedback. It's often the first time a lot of entrepreneurs have really had someone look at their business and give them that feedback. So I think doing so in a way that's um, thoughtful and helpful um, is really key. I can't tell you how many founders have expressed to me frustration with investors that have kind of, you know, asked for data and then not provided any feedback or follow up. I think that that's frankly unacceptable when someone's kind of opening up their company to you and giving you an inside look into the business. I think you owe it to them to give them feedback and try to help them get better because um, at the end of the day, that's that's really critical for them and they don't get to hear that kind of feedback on a day-to-day basis.
1: Well, yeah. And further to that, taking a lot of time out of their day to open that business. You know, you you don't just say business is open and then the person has access to all the information. We spend a lot of time um, on the deals that I'm on doing diligence and making sure that everything's been uploaded because a lot of times, you know, these records aren't in one perfect place. They're everywhere. It takes time. And so, you know, to kind of walk away without explaining why I can see how that would be you know almost offensive to a business owner
2: Definitely and I think that's where we can we can be helpful cuz a lot of the companies we work with they don't have a full-time CFO or maybe you know they have a one one finance person who's working on running the company not necessarily talking to investors so you know a bit overwhelmed um and so we can really help organize what they have and read back to them kind of our view of the company and it's it often ends up being really helpful even if we don't end up investing they kind of take something away that they're able to operationalize in their business and so i think it does end up being a helpful exercise when done correctly and communicated well. And so I think that that's another area where, you know, people can add a lot of value as a as a deal team member is really that um, communication, transparency, and, and willingness to really help grow the companies. Yeah, I'd, I definitely agree. One of the things that I'm most proud of on
1: my deal teams is that, you know, when we when we get into the data room and we're seeing problems, you know, we... We work really closely with the business to try to solve those issues instead of just saying like, "Oh, we don't like this. We're moving on." You know, we we're really intentional about the way that we go about our process and in setting them up for even you know if a deal weren't to fall through, setting them up for a better future, if that makes sense.
2: Definitely, yeah, because you know this is a, a long. A long process, and there are many companies that we got to know over many, many years before we made an investment. Often, I think one of the most recent deals we did, we had been talking to the entrepreneur for about five years before we had even explored um, an investment with them. So, I think this is a very long process, and it's 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 one that really centers around building strong relationships. So, I think um, you know, even if the companies, even if the company today isn't a fit for us, it's not you know, the end of the conversation, but rather kind of the beginning of, of a relationship where we get to help them grow and they get to see how we behave. And then over time, if there's an opportunity to work together, then it's even better when it when it comes together. Yeah, I've definitely seen that deals
1: that, um, you know, have kind of popped up and then there were issues. And so they kind of died down a little bit. And, and meanwhile, you know, while the kind of bankers and the the Attorneys have kind of moved on and like done other things. This business is taking these these things that we flagged as problems and fixing them. And then, you know, months or usually just months, but sometimes years later, they'll, they'll pop back up and say like, oh, like we found this other investor and like the the other investor is able to invest because we laid the groundwork in advance for what they needed to do to make them a valuable asset to invest in.
2: Mm-hmm, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, it's super rewarding when you see that. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, like the best part about this job is getting to work with really awesome people and founders. And so I think that's really kind of what it all comes back to for me. And so the deal details and the structuring and the legal, that's, that's sort of table stakes. And the real kind of differentiation here is, is how do you behave at a in a in a board meeting with a company how do you behave when you're looking at a new investment opportunity how do you behave when things are not going well when companies miss quarters or they you know they're struggling like how do you how do you act in those situations i think tells tells a lot and i and i feel like that's you know one area where i sort of come back to that concept of empathy where you know if you put yourself in their shoes and this is their baby this is what they're building and and so I think it kind of all comes back to that empathy and transparency. Yeah, I definitely agree. And you know, we're
1: talking about things that have lasted a while and you've been in the industry for a while now and had so many valuable experiences over the years working in kind of different stages of investing. So, you know, what are some of the lessons and key takeaways that that you've learned?
2: Yeah, definitely. I would say, you know, I guess maybe putting myself in my twenty two year old self shoes couple pieces of advice that I received that I think are really important is you have to learn the basics and learn the basics really well. So that sometimes means doing things that are not not necessarily fun and glamorous, like, you know, digesting a data room or building a model or scraping through conference websites and trying to find prospects, um, you know, dialing People on the phones, sending tons of emails and follow ups, getting rejected by entrepreneurs, those kinds of, I guess, less fun things, but that are really critical to building a well rounded skill set around uh, deal execution and sourcing. I think it can be tempting to sort of get frustrated and impatient with those types of activities and say, oh, well, this isn't really turning into a deal. When am I going to close a deal? I remember being very impatient around that in my career early on. But you know, looking back, I think those experiences and those and those um, frustrating moments and those times of really kind of late nights understanding how models work or um, really kind of repeatedly chasing down an entrepreneur that I wanted to talk to and having to build um, kind of conviction in myself to go go chase them down and pitch them on me and on my firm. Those were really kind of career building moments. Um, they weren't career defining moments, but they were important to get me to where I am today. So I think, you know, sometimes I talk to younger investors, and they're always sort of apprehensive about sourcing and cold calling and maybe these more kind of what they would consider unglamorous aspects of investing. But I think you know it's really really critical to to build those skill sets to become a really well rounded investor. So that's one. And then the second piece of advice that someone gave me was to speak up within the first 15 minutes of an in-person meeting, whether or not you have a ton of things to say, just try to get into the habit of speaking up. As a junior person, you may think you have nothing to contribute, but really you're the one that's closest to the data and most you know, involved with the model. And so I think you do have more to contribute than you think. And so, really just forcing yourself to to speak up within those first fifteen minutes and make sure your voice is heard just gives you practice and confidence that then when you when you do have a ton of insightful comments and thoughts, you're not scared to speak up about them. Thank you very much, yeah. that
1: that's really great advice. You know, I haven't heard the first fifteen minutes advice before, but that's you know something that I'm gonna take to heart because I, I think that's. You know, it also just flags for whoever's in the call, like that you are, you know, you are involved and you are making sure that, you know, everything's going correctly and kind of identifying yourself to whoever is on that call. So I think that's great advice and I appreciate that you shared it. So thank you so much, Anisha, for, you know, some of the advice that you've you've shared with us. What what are some of the character traits that you feel have benefited you in, in your
2: success? Yeah, great question. I would say probably a few different traits, and they're kind of each pretty different from each other. But the first is the empathy um, piece that I talked about before. Another is just kind of persistence, I guess. And kind of realizing that this is a long game and being persistent, whether it's Continuously trying to get in touch with companies I think are interesting or that I think we could really help. Persistence when it comes to companies telling you, no, sorry, this isn't a fit for us at this time, kind of staying in touch with them and finding ways to add value and not getting discouraged at the no. You also, I think, really need persistence when it comes to advancing in your career in investing. I mean, I've switched firms a couple of times. I've made the difficult transition from VC to private equity, and that required a lot of persistence, a lot of reaching out to people and kind of hearing, no, we want someone who has a traditional banking background, or no, we want someone who went to the MBA program. Like, you'll hear a lot of people say no, um, and that's okay, because those opportunities are not a fit. And so having like, you know, a high degree of persistence, I think is really important, whether it's on the deal front or on in your own career. I would say that that's a trait that's made me successful you know, in my career so far. And then the third is really just, I guess, patience and appreciation. Um, I don't know if I guess that kind of fits into empathy. Maybe it kind of fits into persistence. But just realizing that things take a long time. It takes a long time to build a company. It takes a long time to partner with a business. Um, and so just having that Kind of eye on the ball and and doing so in a very patient and thoughtful way is is really key.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I uh, I agree. Especially so. A little bit of background about me: I I'm also a private equity transplant. I um I began my career in tax, and you know, one thing that kind of plays into that patience aspect of it is understanding that you're not going to know absolutely everything right off the bat, and you have to be very willing and open to learn in an ongoing manner for, for a very long time. You know, the partners that I work with constantly tell me they're, they're still learning, you know, there's still things that pop up that they're like, Ooh, haven't seen that before. But yeah, just having the ability to persevere and the willingness and open openness to learning, I think is, is really, really important in this space.
2: Definitely. Yeah. Okay.
1: Thank you so much for your time today, Anisha. I, I think everything you said is really, really important. And we just, we're so grateful for you being here. Thank you so much. Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us at the table for this episode of Deal Us In. If you have a recommendation for an inspiring interviewee, a question you'd like us to ask, or a topic you would like to hear covered, or if you'd like to tell us about women-focused initiatives in the field, please email us at wpef@maguirewoods.com. at We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.